Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this milestone 100th episode of Tape Notes is Phineas to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album Optimist and his new single Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. Phineas O'Connell is an American singer, songwriter, producer, and actor, best known for his creative partnership with his sister, Billie Eilish. Raised in Los Angeles with both parents actors, Phineas grew up in a highly creative household. Often surrounded by discussion of music, especially songwriting, he began making tracks of his own at the age of 12. While taking various acting jobs, Phineas started writing and performing with his own band, The Slightlies. When his younger sister, Billy, aged 14 at the time, was asked by her dance teacher to write a song for a performance, Phineas gave her Ocean Eyes, originally written for the band, as he thought it suited her voice. Posting the song on SoundCloud, it gained an unexpected amount of praise and attention, inspiring multiple remixes and leading Phineas to collaborate further with Billy. A debut EP, Don't Smile For Me, followed in 2017 on Interscope Records, starting a snowball of success for the duo. At the same time, Phineas also released a series of solo singles, culminating the Blood Harmony EP in 2018. Released on his label, OYOY, it highlighted his modern approach to production and reached number 14 on the US Heatseekers charts, with three tracks certifying gold and the single, Let's Fall In Love For The Night, going platinum. The release of Billy's debut album, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, came in 2019. Produced and co-written entirely from Phineas's bedroom studio, the album became a global mega-hit. As well as topping charts across the globe, it won six Grammy Awards, including the Big Four, Best New Artist, Record, Song and Album of the Year, with Phineas singled out as Producer of the Year. Not long after, they picked up another Grammy and an Oscar for their James Bond theme song, No Time To Die, whilst Phineas also shared his talents on records from artists including Selena Gomez, Camila Cabello and Justin Bieber, among others. In July 2021, three months after delivering Billy's second chart-topping album, Happier Than Ever, and still a crucial part of her live band, Phineas also released his much-anticipated debut album, Optimist. The record once again demonstrates his command of timeless songwriting with a perceptive viewpoint and sharp production edge, all traits apparent in his brand new single, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. Today, I'm at Lightship 95 Studio, afloat in Trinity Boy Wharf, East London, and I'm joined by Phineas between a string of performances at the O2 Arena. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is the 90s. Sometimes I think about the 90s I know that everyone romanticized it But you could sign me up For a world without the internet Hate how easy they can find me Just by looking up my mom's address I think about the 90s When I was not a problem yet all the time I should have been so happy I was here Wasting it on worrying just made it disappear Now my head feels so heavy I'm left holding up the levee It is the 90s by Phineas from the album Optimist and I'm very pleased to say that I am sat with Phineas 
here at Lightship 95 Studios. Hello, Phineas. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it's it. It's really exciting and a real pleasure. Um, so we've come to Lightship 95, which is on Trinity Boy Wharf by the River Thames. And just opposite is it's, the O2. Is it by the River Thames or is it in the River Thames? I, I think it's possibly by. Is the wharf slightly? I, I'm not sure. We're in we, the wharf. We, we can check. Maybe yeah. we'll get a definition on that before we really vote. I don't really know my, my oceanography, I guess. No, no, fair enough. But I mean, you, you, you have just played at the O2 last night. We did, yeah. And you're kind of a residency how many yeah. nights in a row yeah billy well we were playing six in totality three in a row and then i think you know some other wonderful artist moves in right and then we go back on the 16th and play a fourth and then presumably other wonderful artists move in and then we go back on the 25th and 6th and play five and six so right over the course of a month we're playing six shows which is ridiculous so uh, yeah but you have a little break in between, or do you run off and do something we, else? We run off, yeah. We, right. we go off to play Glasgow and Birmingham. and Right. Yeah, it'll be really fun. But for the moment, you're based in this area, so this is yes. your, this your home base. neighborhood. That's right, yeah, right. my zip code. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So it's so good to have you here. Thanks so for having me. The idea is that we're going to dig into Optimist, uh-huh. the album, right. the much-anticipated debut album by uh-huh. Phineas. And how did you feel about that? I mean, having had so much success with Billy, with yeah. your sister... How did that weigh on you in terms of your own material? Because you started first. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there was, I think about music in terms of sort of appetite for an audience. It's kind of always how I've looked at it. Like when Billy and I first started, you know, we were lucky that there were some people listening to her music at first, but it really in the grand scheme of things wasn't a huge amount of people. So we put out a single or two and then, when we deemed it appropriate, we put out an EP that was a little bit long by EP standards, six songs or seven songs. And then a year and a half later, we put out her debut album. And I think we thought of that as sort of like, okay, well, the EP brought in a larger audience and a larger audience wants a longer body of work. And so I thought of, of my solo music the same way. I made the decision at the beginning of 2000 and I guess the beginning of 2018 I just said, okay, well, I'm going to put out a song every six weeks all year. And I was independent at the time. Um, I used the distribution platform AWOL, which was through the publishing company I was signed to. But it's not a, AWOL stands for Artists Without a Label. Just a distribution platform. There were wonderful people there. And I put out a song every six weeks all year. And it was just about sort of building appetite, you know, giving people something to keep coming back to, but not overwhelming them. I don't know about you, but I feel like in today's sort of rapid climate, an artist that I really like will put out an album suddenly without warning. And I think like, oh, I got I to gotta factor this into my schedule somehow. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's a, totally. I want to really listen mm. to it. So one of the reasons I like touring is I have a flight to really listen to a full album. You know, I have 45 minutes to devote to something. So as an artist, it was like, I'll just, you know, three minutes every six weeks is pretty easy to ask of people. And then a year later, it was like, well, let me put out an EP and I can ask 20 minutes of people and then a year and a half after that I thought all right let's put out an album and we can ask we can ask that of people yeah um so you know that's kind of always how I thought about it and uh I think I was just mainly excited that people seemed to want a full-length album that was really exciting yeah yeah totally well um as somebody who is so key to the success of Billie Eilish you know people would be interested sure. in what you're gonna do as well <laughs> yes and how did that affect you creatively no, did did you feel you needed to do something completely different or yeah. uh, turn it upside down or just actually do what you wanted to do? 
Well, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. That's a, I appreciate you saying that, but I did feel that that, in order for it to be authentic, would need to be different. You know, I'm not Billy in terms of, you know, she has a, a incredible vision and executes it to an incredibly, you know, high level, in my opinion. And, you know, she just has a different vision that I love, but I thought the worst thing I could do was make the same thing as a solo artist. And probably that would be the most kind of inauthentic, really. Just because, you know, we're just different people. And uh, so I, I feel like that was very important to me to be sort of planting a different flag. I loved the idea that, sure, if you were a, a huge Billy fan, you might hear my music and like it. And I loved the idea that, that maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you'd be a huge Billy fan and hear my thing and think like, this isn't really for me. And then somebody who maybe, you know, the music I make with Billy isn't for them would hear my thing and, and think, oh no, I like this more. You know, yeah. I liked that idea of the differentiation. Yeah, yeah. somebody would react and say, what, what yeah. he's Billy Eilish's like, brother? Exactly. What? No way. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an eclectic record, you know, in Super, terms of yeah. styles. Yes. You know, so you go from, you know, a concert six months from now where yeah. you're an acoustic troubadour to something like the 90s <laughs> yeah. where, you know, I guess that nods a little bit yeah. to certain sounds that we might have heard with your production work with it's other true. people. Yeah. But the songs we're going to look at today are different uh -huh. to, again. Yeah. And the first one we're going to look at is How It Ends, uh -huh. which closes the album yes so we're kind of beginning at the end kind of yeah but you know what's funny i initially thought this was going to start the album so it kind of all makes sense yes we talk about right it. yeah no well, that's good so maybe we should hear a little, a little of blast it. of the sure. mastered version and get what you're saying all right so i'll play some of this what was the point of all of those migraines if life's so short don't spend it my way Try to avoid A pointless time change If you want to see the world Don't take the highway If you want to dance again You can dance again Use a lifeline Honey, phone a friend It'll take some time, it'll make you glad To have what you had again, this isn't how it ends So that is How It Ends by Phineas from Optimist and in some ways Phineas, yeah. that seems to me, yeah. it is the optimistic track yeah. you know, There's a kind of great optimism to that song Yeah there is, I mean I was, I was writing that song in the sort of peak or the valley whichever you want to call it, of the lockdown mm. So, there, you know, on a kind of a literal front, there's that whole, like, if you want to dance again, you can dance again. You know, I was just sort of thinking about the fact that it felt like it was a long time, and it was, but that it wasn't going to be forever. And, you know, it's been really satisfying. Like, you know, we played the O2 last night. It's full of kids jumping up and down and hugging each other. And it's very heartwarming because obviously there were, I think we all think everything kind of is forever. So when COVID was happening, there was this sort of like, nothing's ever going to be good again. It's really exciting that, you know, yeah. people are enjoying themselves again. Yeah, totally. So your positivity you know, has seen some fruition yeah, after so. how it ends. Yeah. And how do you go about creating your songs? You know, yeah, it's all you know, different every time. I, I started making music as a 12-year-old. You know, I didn't know how to produce or anything, so I, would, I knew a little bit of piano. I was sort of a remedial pianist, remedial guitarist, so I would play the two, three chords I knew and you know, make up words and melodies over that. And that was really how I wrote everything for the first 
five or six years. Like that was the only way. And then I started, you know, bands with my friends in high school. And then it was a fun, you know, I'd have a great drummer and he'd play a beat and that would maybe inspire like slightly more rhythmic lyrics and melody. And that was exciting. And then as I got a little bit older throughout high school, I was like trying to figure out how to produce. And so that was the other thing was making little instrumental loops with MIDI tracks and writing over those because they do inspire different things. I think it would be hard to write an incredible rap over you know something with no rhythm at all to sort of play off of and it, it can be done and great rappers do it but you know it's more typical to write you know more rhythmic lyrics over rhythm so yeah, yeah. i read that you went on a production course with your mum <laughs> was this an afternoon or a, a week-long experience so my, the our mom does write songs she never you know made a living out of it really at all but wrote songs as kind of a hobby and um when we expressed a little bit of interest when we were young, she sort of was like, well, you know, there's no wrong way to write a song, but let's talk about song structure. You know, let's talk about what a bridge is and what a rhyme scheme is. And, you know, once you're able to identify those things, you're able to identify a lot of commonality in music. And then you can break all those rules, but it's cool to know them and understand them. But there was never any production, but, it, you know, in terms of songwriting, it was really fun. It was, you know, she'd sort of be like, because I think sometimes as a songwriter, you feel a lot of pressure to like express your innermost, really bare your soul. And she really instilled in us a kind of a like, yes, but also you could just write a song that's made up, that's about something else. And uh, I remember one time she was sort of suggested that we write a song about like a plot of a TV show. You know, you put yourself in the shoes of some character on TV. It's very liberating. And I think about the sort of scope of our career now and I think like oh that's one of the reasons like doing something like the James Bond song felt so natural to us was because we'd sort of had this like childhood of an awareness of writing about somebody other than yourself you know and yeah. it takes the pressure off sometimes sometimes you're not going through heartbreak and it's like writing a song about heartbreak would be inauthentic if you were like I have to feel it you know yeah yeah totally yeah. but it sounds like you know that whole part of growing up you yeah. were surrounded by a milieu of of creativity, yep. but also discussion of yeah, music, yeah. discussion of songs, what they're all about, both with, yes. within your family, but yep. also with your friends. Yeah, yeah. And, and you were clearly somebody who was, who was gripped by it. I was obsessed with music, yeah, from the time I was about 10, 11. I mean, I listened to music growing up constantly, but then, yeah, I remember having this little stupid MP3 player. Like when iPod was getting big, I couldn't afford an iPod, so I had like whatever the thing that you'd, and then I'd like load LimeWire songs onto it. Which isn't stealing, so I'm saying it on this <laughs> show. It was file sharing. It's a different thing. But uh, I had some stupid little MP3 player with it had no screen, so you just kind of like be like blind shifting through songs. So I was really obsessed with that as a kid, you know, under ten. And then when I was like eleven, twelve, I just got so obsessed with sort of like a deeper understanding of it and listening to songs and understanding what about it was you know sounding cool to me and why it made me feel a certain emotion. You know, it's always been like so exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So when we get to something like How It Ends, where did this start? So let's break it down. I had a, a synth recommended to me by a friend of mine. And yes, let's see. So we have this drum loop. I think that's on a synth called... It's either an M-Audio Venom or it's a Prophet X. And I'm leaning toward it being an M-Audio Venom. 
But anyway, I have a couple of synths in my studio now that are, I'm a big sort of advocate for not, you know, not buying a bunch of expensive gear. You can make stuff with great stock plugins from Logic or Ableton. But I do find that it is inspiring once you've made hundreds of songs with those things to get something that you don't fully understand and that's brand new. So the M-Audio Venom is a, basically like a discontinued like toy synth that I got on eBay for some nominal amount of money. And it had this, it felt very kind of like disco-y to me. And over top of that, I layered a thing that I am fairly certain is a Prophet X patch, which was this kind of that sounded like it's a synth patch, but it sounded almost like sort of like seagulls or something. Mm. And it conjures a completely different world to the one that you end up with. Yeah, but it, but it really is under the whole mm. song. That really was the foundation of everything. And over top of that, I played sort of an organ patch, which has no rhythm. It's very soft, but it's chordal. And so it's the thing that has kind of a tonal chordal bass happening. And so those chords alone probably were the baseline for writing lyrics, which is kind of often the case for me. What was the point of all of those migraines? You can hear a little bit of the bleed of the drums so short, in the headphones. Don't spend it my way. I think there's also a track, which is a Farfisa plugin, which is very distorted. This is buried really far down. But that's what it sounds like when it's loud. That's sitting below everything else. But altogether that makes up this. All of those migraines. And when you do that vocal, is that yeah. the finished vocal or is that a do you just improvise words or do you write them out first? Or, no. Great question. On this song, the first thing I did, which got thrown away, I don't think I could pull it up, unfortunately, um, but I did one scratch take of a vocal while I was writing it. I think I could be totally wrong. I want to say it was like into a vocoder mic, which is like a little crappy mic attached to a, a synthesizer called a Ultra Nova by Novation. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, something to get the sort of you know, the melody lyric across without being precious about takes. If I pull up like the take list, yeah, there's about like 16 takes of that verse that I then comp together and process and do a little tuning. I've sort of never, I've never really tuned Billy's vocals because she's such a good singer, but I have to tune mine all the time. Right, yeah, right. I'm not as good. I think there's some harm. Do you think that is self-awareness or is that necessary? Like if you were working with another producer right. who was producing you rather than you producing you, do you think they'd be saying, look, Phineas, actually, you're, you're doing yourself a disfavor here? Uh, by tuning? Yes. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. It's also probably impatience. Billy, you know, does, uh, we're working on a song right now. She does, you know, 80 takes. I do about 12. Sometimes I do like six. I, I'm pretty impatient about vocal recording. And I usually make somebody else comp them too. I have a, a couple vocal editors. Cause, and then I'll, I know that I did for this song too. I had a, a Justin Gamella do the, 
vocal comp for me um, because I find it harder to have perspective on something that I'm singing and writing and then also editing. Yeah. Easier for me to comp something that someone else sung. Yeah. So I had him do it. Over top of that, I layered some harmonies as the verse moved into the second half. Try to avoid a pointless time change. Just a little octave up. Kept it really quiet. A pointless time change. And how do you process your vocals then? I do very little processing on the harmonies. There's uh, nothing. They're completely dry. Yeah, there's nothing on the harmonies. They're running in my studio through a CL1B, that sort of classic blue compressor unit that's probably somewhere in this room. Um, yeah, the sort of like the most standard compressor, but that's a new thing for me. Also, I, I used to use just the Logic compressor plugin, but I've started running it through that, yeah. And do you have a favorite mic or, or do you always use the same I use mic? A, for... I, yeah, I spent a many years using a, a TLM 103 Neumann microphone, which is still what I have on the road, so I still do a lot of recording on it. I think that mic's awesome. At home, I use a Chandler Red on my own voice and on a lot of other people, and then Billy sings into a Telefunken 251 at home, which I think sounds awesome on her. We sort of, before we started making her second album and then my first album after that, we had some downtime and did like real, like shootouts, microphone shootouts, which we'd never done in our lives, but right. we had the time and it was fun. And that was the one that she thought sounded the most exciting on her voice. And I liked the Chandler Red too. Yeah. So that was what we landed on. Yeah. And great idea. And great that you had the time to do that because yeah. that ends up saving time in, totally. the, in the long run. Well, and I also sort of, again, like maybe by accident, I've always been kind of a stickler for sort of not, like I don't, it's hard for me to believe the hype about things, you know? If somebody goes, oh my God, you got to use this. It's the best. I'm like, well, is it, am I going to notice, you know? Because I've been doing, like the first mic we ever used was called an AT2020, which was what we did, Ocean Eyes and a couple of our other songs on it. It was like $80. And, you know, I always had a feeling of like, this mic sounds fine. And it was like a little noisier than I like. I don't like a, a high noise floor. I can't really stand the sure SM7 microphone because even with a cloud lifter, it's too, there's too much, like it just sounds like that. And I like real silence in between words. So I used this AT2020 for a long time. And then I graduated to this Neumann microphone, which I probably literally picked out of like the bestseller list on Sweetwater or something and used that all through her first album. And then, you know, again, it was always about like, if I'm convinced, then I'll change, you know? So if we do the shootout and we're really like, okay, we can hear a difference, you know? But I feel like it's like being a connoisseur of anything. It's like people swear they can hear the difference between a, you know, wave and an FLAC. And mm. I can't. Yeah. I wish I could, but I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And so going back yeah. to how it ends, I uh -huh. mean, you're making it seem really simple and straightforward, uh -huh. you know, the way that you're running through these different elements sure. of the song. Um, maybe it was. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, for lack of a better word, it was pretty straightforward. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this song was oftentimes I sit and I write a song at piano and then I have to throw it into this world of production and figure out if it's going to have rhythm, if it's going to have drums, what they're going to sound like. And this song I was writing over top all these elements. So the elements were kind of predetermined, which is, you know, kind of a time saver, to be honest, because you're, it's twofold. It's a little dangerous and it's also a time saver. The dangerous part is I probably spent hours getting that kick snare and synth sound to where I wanted it to be. And I had no song. And then I had to write a song over it. 
And there's always a potential that you're going to write a really terrible, bogus song that you devoted hours to drums on already. And so in some ways, it's not super advisable because at least if you've written a song and you think it's incredible and then you work on the production, any time spent figuring out the perfect snare sound and the perfect guitar sound, you know that your foundation is a song you really like that you really want to put out. So there is kind of a questionable quality to working this way where you're writing a song thinking like, oh my God, I hope I write something good over this because I've spent too long on this kick drum to write a mediocre song that I then will, you know, when you listen to something back in its final form, you'll know if it's a crappy song and you'll think, oh my God, I'm not going to put this out, you know? <laughs> and that's, it's happened before where right. you, I've spent hours and hours working on an instrumental and then written a mediocre song and then thought like, well, I guess I should try to write another song because this instrumental is outshining this crappy song. Yeah. But hopefully you learn something along the course oh, yeah. of that Oh yeah. Every journey. failure in music, just like most failures and everything you learn a ton from. It's very true. Yeah. yeah. And and when you're recording your vocals, do you just sit down and, you know, in front of the equipment that you're using and, yeah. and just sit there casually or do you prefer to be in a in a particular place or zone or Yeah, I've booth? I've turned into, uh, you know, I I've never really had an assistant engineer or anything up until very recently. I've started to use somebody because I've had to. I haven't really had it the time otherwise but um so i have to be pressing record and pressing pause and moving the playhead at the same time so i do i sit right in front of my keyboard and look across the room at the tv monitor which is where my computer screen is and yeah i have to be doing both at the same time so it's not dissimilar to this setup right here where i have my keyboard right here and i have a mic in front of me and i'm seeing the track it's just sort of right there and i i do sit for everything i sit with pretty good posture to have my diaphragm open you right. know so but I, straight back or yes yeah 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 i have good posture when i sing but right. that's about it i don't stand or anything yeah yeah because some people would say oh no you can't possibly sing i know sitting yeah down. and yeah. you know what like sometimes just sort of to really lean into something i might stand and especially if we're really rocking out i might stand so i can move my body a little more freely and but yeah in general you know if, you, if you're sitting with good posture and you're you know, taking deep breaths, I feel like I don't notice a difference. Yeah. Is the good posture innate? Is this a family trait? Um, <laughs> or did you have to learn that? Did you have to yeah, go to a class? I sang, Billy did too, we sang in a very serious children's choir from the time we were, probably the time she was about eight, the time I was like 12 until I was 17. And it was, you know, they were, they were very strict and very serious. It was very classical. You know, I think we sang a couple, you know, new pieces, but they were written by very traditional composers so to speak you know it was, we were not singing uh kids bop you know yeah. we were singing hymns and it was great it was a secular organization we did rehearse in a choir but it was uh you know we did musics from all all faiths um yeah. it was cool but yes they were very particular about our posture and yeah. uh, so we learned a lot yeah, that sounds great. I mean, because that kind of education, when you're you're not even realizing you're getting an ed yeah. education, becomes you know, part of of who you are. It's just fascinating. Um, so going back to how it ends, are there any other elements yeah. that we should be listening to? Yeah, let's see what's interesting. There was a time where I thought this was maybe going to start the album, and then I thought that a concert six months from now was going to make a better start to the album. So I thought this would make a good ending. Mm. Um, yeah, let's move to the chorus. If you want to dance again, you can dance again. Use a lifeline, honey, phone a friend. It'll yeah, I like the idea time. of having melodies playing over top the, the vocal melody on this part of the song. So that was a fun, 
fun way to sort of articulate it. Once again, use a lifeline, honey, phone a friend. It'll take some time, it'll make you glad to have what you had again. This um, so that was fun just to sort of add into it. I think there's also a little bit of, what is this track right here? Yeah, just some, some really noise-gated claps. Honey, phone a friend, it'll take some time make you glad. And then the bass comes in here too, which I thought was important. This is just the Trillion plug-in. I'm an impatient person, so I sometimes will record live bass, but oftentimes the time between plugging the actual bass in and tuning it up and finding the right patch is, is longer than I'm interested in waiting. So yeah. I'll just use the Trillion plugin because it's almost instantaneous, which is exciting. Oh yeah, and there's this one other drum. This was on the Prophet, I believe. Which I thought added some, some neck to the song. And then in the chorus, big vocal stack. Super noise-gated, which I like the sound of. I like when words punch out in, in backing vocals and they don't have all of the consonants and loose S's or anything. I think that's exciting. This also has a decapitator plug-in on it. So it's a little bit distorted, a little bit crushed, and it has a little bit of reverb. So in that case, it's much more processed than the lead vocal. The lead vocal has compression, and then it also has a little bit of slapback delay. Put down. I got really into slapback on this album for some reason. And then there's some fun synths on this chorus too. That's a really nice, I think that's Prophet as well, Prophet X. And then, that's an Omnisphere patch that I thought was cool. This is a massive patch, massive the Native Instruments plugin. A little more Farfisa too. And then there's some other leads over top of that. So are these presets? Or are you creating these sounds? <laughs> They're very often presets. I like to scroll through a a plug-in bank or a synth bank and find a preset I like and then maybe I'll tweak it if it's got, you know, if it's a little brighter than I want it to be. I'll adjust the envelope or, you know, maybe I'll change the delay parameter, but I'm a I'm a preset guy. Yeah. You know. Speed to, seems to be of the essence. You know, while while you're you're thinking about something, moving on, capturing that thought. Yeah. Combining yeah. it with something else. I would say that sort of, you know, so let's we have the we have the verse built in this song and then we're moving into the chorus. And I kind of know what I want to accomplish with the chorus, right? I want to make it sort of open up and get wide. And I want it to be more exciting than where the verse is and less restrained. And um I want to, you know, just sort of allow it to have this kind of depth to it that the verses don't. And so I'm looking for things that are gonna help me achieve that goal. I think that's part of the speed thing, is it's like all right, I have this objective in mind. Let me scroll through patches and place. Okay, that I like that patch. Let me see what I should play with that patch. So on the first chorus, it was all those synth layers. And then moving on, there's there's this little moment at the end of the second pre-chorus. 
this again Use a lifeline Honey, phone a friend It'll make you cry There's a little Little and Sort of one and two and three and four When it ends Over top of that And then the other thing that I thought was cool in the second verse And this was, this was how the whole vocal sounded initially This was this the first time I sang the vocal on this song, I think I was probably holding a handheld mic, like a Shure 57. And uh, I was probably just playing it in the room and I was running it through like really aggressive auto-tune. Who wants a millionaire when you can have a friend? That's auto-tune and it's also a plugin called Little Alter Boy that I think had like the octave shifted on it. So it's super processed, but I thought that specific line was really cool so i left all the new vocal in up to that and then i threw that line in it'll make you cry when you make amends who wants a millionaire when you can have a friend when it ends. and then there's some really mediocre guitar playing on the second <laughs> i'm a really crappy guitarist but i do play a bunch of guitar Yeah, so terrible. But to me, it's like, you know, again, it's like, it's all accomplishing a goal. Yeah. Like, you know, it's so far down in the mix anyway that it's like it would be a, a waste of time of calling a, one of the great guitarists I know and being like, hey, come play this like dumb part that nobody's going to hear. <laughs> yeah, and yet when it's it. in there and yeah. it does add an element that, yeah. you know, would be missing. If, I if wish, I understand why they don't, but I wish that every great, artist would make their stems their files accessible to everybody because you would hear the like true mediocrity of the the you know parts as individual elements it's the sum of the parts that sounds great when i listen to songs I, i've i've been lucky enough to have access to some stems of some of my favorite songs and they're pretty bad you know what i mean like they're loose they're 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 not played super well the piano's a little out of tune the there's a high noise floor, but it's the glue. It's the combination of everything that sounds so beautiful. So, you yeah, know, it's cool. Yeah, and we, I think we've definitely heard that with how it ends because one of the great things I like about doing take notes is that when you get to hear the individual components, and to me, in my mind, they, they could head off in so many different yeah, directions, yeah, but the artist chooses to combine them with these other elements and suddenly you've got yeah. how it ends. You know, right. Because there's all those different elements. You could have gone into a real dance zone yep. or you know, go Mm -hmm. quite gothic in, in yeah. a way but then you have all these other shades that yeah. that lighten it and help create that right. optimistic feel mm -hmm. and that positivity it's true yeah. excellent well let's have a, a recap of, yeah. of the blast of the master round off how it ends and then we'll move on to another song some of that guitar chug as well because I, I, really, <laughs> I really like that element Thank you. that is how it ends we're going to look at medieval in just a moment
You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So the next song we're going to look at by Phineas is Medieval, but I need to check. So we're sat on Lightship 95, which <laughs> is a studio on a boat or on a ship. And it is swaying a little. Are you, are you OK? Have you got sea legs? Uh, yeah, I was just thinking that I'm not really noticing that it's swaying at all. That's good. I am a. <laughs> I guess you like, can Whoa. see it. I guess you can see it on the water. Like the, the water the, is a little bit tremble on the water in the glass. A little bit, a little bit askew. But <laughs> I don't. I'm not, I'm not trying to play marbles or anything, so I'm not really noticing. Yeah. So that's okay. Phew. I just wanted to check. Um. So let's hear a blast of sure. of the master of medieval. You got it. It feels a little medieval If you ask me like I'm watching a sequel I've already seen I could tell you what happens To the new king when he goes out of fashion I want my money back now Ow. I've been in the wrong crowd Ow. I'd never say it out loud Out of your mouth What should we fight about this time? What will you write about this time? What does it matter if you're not fine? You should have kept that shit offline So that is medieval. Yeah. And Phineas, how did that start then? So the reason I wanted to bring this one up is that it's the exact opposite. I sat at a piano and wrote this song in its entirety and knew I liked it, and then in translating it to recorded form, thought, well, I don't think this is a ballad. So it was about you know building a production around chords and, and lyric and melody that I liked, but there's a very different sort of origin story to a song that ended up in a kind of a similar instrumental place, bunch of guitars, bunch of drums, bunch of keys. So I thought it was like interesting to bring up the sort of yeah. parallel. 
Yeah, definitely. So it started with you sat at a piano. Do you have yeah. any illustration of that? I don't know if I have a demo, but I have, you know, here's a vocal of it. And then let me isolate just the piano because this would give you an idea of sort of how it sounded. Out, I'd never say it out loud, out, but I've hated every word that comes out of your mouth. What should we fight about this time? And did the song come from the chords you were creating on the piano or did the chords shape from the words that you were thinking of? Because the lyrics are really searching and, and really interesting. Yeah. I do the sort of sitting at a piano or sitting with a guitar. It's all kind of happening simultaneously as a sort of an improv. I'm playing chords and I'm singing stuff and I'm making it all up at the same time and I'm seeing where it goes, but it's very fluid. and it, It's rare that it's there's one before the other. It's just sort of all happening concurrently. Yeah. Yeah. And with medieval, yeah. I mean, lyrically, you're yeah. looking at a subject that you touch on a few times on the record, which yeah. is probably a subject that only an artist of your generation would be able to comment on with any, any certainty in that you've grown up in this world, you know, where we're right. surrounded by this constant yeah. coverage that we can share whatever sure. we like to millions <laughs> of people, yeah. uh, whether they want it or not. And other people can do the same about us. Yeah, and we're forced to, to deal with the reaction yeah. to that. Yeah, I think this song was a kind of a layer cake of things for me. I think there's the sort of probably most obvious angle of it, which is that it's about, you know, cancel culture and being eviscerated online. But I think the other thing and the thing that really was the, the impetus for writing the song in general was more to do with the sort of like not cancellation, but a kind of a cultural thing that I don't even think is very new, which is a thing becomes popular and it's in vogue, and there's this kind of mass, like, oh, we love this thing. And then maybe through overexposure, it crosses the bridge from cool and exciting to, like, overrated and cast out. And I think that I was thinking about it, you know, myself as a teenager, and I won't name names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but, you know, an artist or a band I might have thought was so great, and then, you know, they put out their second or third album and I was like this is trash and you just like <laughs> abandon ship on this artist that meant so much to you you had a poster of them on your wall you know and I just think that like that combined with the cancel culture is just kind of a weird like old king is dead long live the king thing that we do with with media in general of like I love this song I love this film I love this book and then a year later, it's like, fuck that. I don't like that at all. You know, yeah. it's a weird yeah. thing that we all do. So that was sort of the thing that I was thinking about when I was writing it. Yeah. And you make that comparison between, you know, the humanity of now who thinks that, hey, everything's new. We've got these new shiny toys yeah. and, and our, our culture has evolved. And you point out that actually, no, this is a human trait that goes back Very to primitive. the dawn of time. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, I think that's the other thing is like when something goes out of fashion. And uh, I think at the time... When I was writing this song, it was probably, it was also during the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests in America. And I did not really feel qualified or interested in writing or commercializing any of that. I wrote sort of two songs during that period of time. I wrote this song and I wrote a song called What They'll Say About Us. And what they both, there's undercurrents of it in both those songs. What They'll Say About Us was about Nick Cordero and his wife Amanda Klutz and Nick Cordero was dying and it was all happening at the same time. It was like the first time anyone had paid any attention to anything that wasn't COVID since COVID started because George Floyd had just been murdered and there were protests every day. And I was thinking like, wow, we're all paying attention to something else. 
but everybody's still dying of COVID. So in that song, I was writing about it. And then in this song, it was like, you know, we'd had this very fortunate ascent to sort of whatever you want to call it, notoriety or influence. And, and it was the first time we'd spoken out on, you know, what I consider apolitical things. I consider them human rights issues, but, you know, people who disagree with you consider them political. And so it was like just sort of feeling the backlash of talking about something that I thought couldn't be more clear which side was the correct side to be on, you know? So it's just kind of writing about like the the nature of like the kind of messages I was getting for posting again, like slogans like Black Lives Matter does not seem super hard to get behind for me. And anyone that was like, I used to be a fan, <laughs> like right. Jesus Christ. All right, <laughs> off with you. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I was kind of thinking about that at the same time. Yeah. There's that like, if you get political, they'll make you criminal. It's all a bit biblical, just like anything. God forbid you have an opinion. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a tricky thing because you can end up getting your wings clipped by that kind of reaction. And it's difficult to think, hang on a minute. No, I, I couldn't say. Well, and people, you know, I have friends who are staunchly, again, like to me, it's not political, but I have friends who are staunchly apolitical on the internet because they're terrified of alienating their fan base, their audience. And it's like, I empathize because they've built a livelihood off of it. And, um, I don't think anybody wants to like lose the thing that they've worked really hard to attain. But, you know, at the end of the day, to me, it was like, well, this is who I am. So anyone who cares about who I am, you know, needs to know that this is how I feel about this thing. Yeah. yeah. And it also like, the whole thing was frustrating to me because it felt like posting some article to donate to the, you know, bail fund or whatever we were doing. Like it all felt like the bare minimum. It did not feel like I was being some champion or some hero. It felt like the easiest, lowest common denominator positive thing I could possibly do. So the idea that I was like getting hate for that, I was like, this is so, this is so menial and silly. Yeah, yeah. So you're there at the piano, thinking yeah. all these thoughts, yeah. trying to put some of these thoughts into yeah. words and then combine them with music. Yeah. So then you're faced with a series of questions yeah. about what am I going to do with all this? That's right. Yeah, so I had this song that I thought was really cool on its own, sounded like that with the piano and the vocal. And then I think the first thing I did was I started to build a drum loop that I would sing over. Let me go through and pick out some drums. These are claps. That's just me clapping a bunch in front of a microphone. There's some reverb on it, some artificial reverb, because the room I was clapping in was very dry. I think this is a layer of synthetic claps, so to speak. I think these are claps that I, these are samples that I found that I thought layered nicely. And then this is this weird kick sound. And then there's a kick snare. And then there's a bass on top of it. And then the claps sit over it. And I thought that was exciting. I thought I liked the idea of singing the song over top of that. And so I threw the vocal over that. Sounds just like you'd imagine it would. I want my money back now. So you'd already recorded the vocal? No, that was the thing I added. I started singing over top of that. I want my money back now. I've been in the wrong. There's a couple other tracks on top of it. There's a, yeah, this is Quick Sampler. This is also playing at the same time. I thought that was super weird and cool. 
the sample I loaded in called Toy Music Box. This reminded me of like a merry-go-round or something. Mm. Every word that comes out of your mouth What should we fight about this time? What will you write I thought this was really cool. This was a contact synth that I, I loaded in. I think it's a plugin called Analog Strings by Output, and then it's got Overdrive, Decapitator, and Valhalla Room. Without the processing, I bet it sounds like violins. Like, this sounds like um, Psycho, right? Mm. In the shower. But then it's super distorted. It's interesting how when isolated, all these different elements actually link in to the ly lyrical elements quite well. You know, <laughs> right. it's quite Yeah, I find that, like, you know, music is a... The production world is sort of, you were saying it earlier, it's, a, it's completely limitless, right? You could take a song in any different direction and you could, there's no status bar on a song. You don't ever get told it's done or it's complete. So I do try to be as sort of like thoughtful as I can be in terms of, you know, okay, what, what am I saying here? What am I trying to articulate emotionally? Like, what should I add? What should I take away? Um, because then it gives me kind of a compass to go by of like, all right, well, the, here's the song. Let me see what I can add, what I can subtract. I think there's also this is a cool Omnisphere patch that is run through clip distortion. That was really cool. Some guitars. So that's all in this... Uh, pre-chorus i believe what should we fight about this time what will you write about this time what does it matter if you're not fine you should have kept that shit offline there's a plugin by fab filter called fab filter twin 2 that i think is amazing Just textural, just stuff happening underneath it to give it kind of a, a depth. And then in the chorus, the chorus is sort of a, a double chorus. And I did a thing that I've done many times and I'm hardly the inventor of, but I filtered the highs out of the vocal and I took out most of the instrumentation for the first half to just um, give some release. Feels a little so the vocals dulled down, like the elements under it are very minor, even the drums are dull. Brought in some really big synths over top of that. Where's the biggest one? Yeah. Some like Stranger Things, 80s yeah. synth. I love arpeggiators. <laughs> I feel like I'm a big, uh, big fan of an arpeggiator, which, you know, for the layman is just a chord broken up and played in sequence. It can be low to high, it can be high to low, it can be randomized. But as opposed to playing notes on top of each other, it's playing them in a pattern at a certain value, note value, half note, whole note, quarter note. So this is eighth note. You know, 
that's the basis of an arpeggio, but I, I do like the way that it breaks everything up. So that's the chorus. There's a lot of harmonies too. Let's see where those live. So that's the other thing that I always do when I pull in a chorus is play a billion harmonies. Yeah, we got octave, third down, third up, and double. All sitting everywhere. It feels a little medieval, kissing the ring in a gothic cathedral. Have you ever seen what really happens to people like me when we go out of fashion? And then I had a different second verse, but I really liked the way that the rhythm of the song felt, so I rewrote it. So that was the only thing I wrote over this instrumentation was They're gonna tear you from your pedestal It's almost inevitable I'm not being cynical It's so unoriginal Cool guitar, cool bass over it I'm not being cynical It's so unoriginal If you get political They'll make you a criminal It's all a bit biblical Don't put your camera And how long would this process have taken? How many goes at it? Would you have done this all in, in one session, one yeah. long, long day? Or would you have a few ideas, play around? My favorite way to produce a song is to have an, uh, you know, a start point where there's no deadline, you know, where it's very explorative. I go in one direction and then I change my mind and I go in a different direction and I sort of make an amalgam of, of everything. And then I find deadlines to be pretty important ultimately because without them, it's easy to just overthink something forever. And it's good to be like, all right, it has to be done. It has to be done. I think in this song's case, we were working on a crazy vinyl deadline. I wanted the album, I had a tour booked for end of October of 2021. And I wanted the album to be out before the tour started and the vinyl lead time, which now is like 10 months or a year, the vinyl lead time was six months. So the album had to be mixed and mastered six months before it would come out. And it was, whatever that was, March. I was like having to finish the song to mix it, to master it. So there was kind of a tight deadline but I had started the production and I'd started it so it was you know in reality it was sort of finishing it under a tight deadline but I've also like I've had shocking a shocking amount of deadlines in my career um <laughs> everything everything cool that I've ever done has been under under duress <laughs> right I mean do you, when do you know when to stop adding things I mean, do you, can you sense a completion yeah, or yeah. does the deadline tell you, right, this I is I usually think of it as like load bearing. I usually think you kind of fill up this bucket and then it gets too heavy and you're like, whoa, 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 I have to stop adding stuff or I have to take something out to add something else. And that's usually when I know it's done. And sometimes that's like no elements at all. I've, I've have a reputation for sort of minimalistic productions and I've made a lot of those where there's a piano and vocals and some little synth and that's about it. And those songs, they would sound crazy if they had anything else, you know, even though they could, they could mm -hmm. have a million other things because they're very simple. It's like, they don't sound good with more stuff. So that's the way I know as I go like, I think it's full. 
It's a way you know to stop eating, right? You're like, I feel, <laughs> I feel full. I'm no longer hungry. Yeah, yeah. That, I, like, I like that analogy. Right, let's hear a bit more sure. of The Master of Medieval. Yeah. And then we're going to move on to a third song, which is a new song you're yeah. working on. Very exciting. It feels a little medieval If you ask me like I'm watching a sequel I've already seen I could tell you what happens To the new king when he goes out of fashion It feels a little medieval Kissing the ring in a gothic So that is Medieval. The next song we're going to look at from Phineas is a brand new song. This one's we'll brand back. new. The next song we're going to look at by Phineas is a brand new song called Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. Is that right? Correct. Fantastic. But we're going to hear a little blast of the yeah, master sure. now. I think she got what she wanted. Waited a week before she even responded. We had a couple friends in common when I met her Wasn't worried but I should have been I think she knew what she was doing Getting in my car Outside of me but music on a standard bar Independent when I met her Now she's my only medicine So that is Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. Yeah. Where did it all start, Phineas? I wrote a song on piano that had verses that didn't make a lot of sense. And like, I couldn't sing them to you now. I don't remember them. But I wrote that chorus over the same chords and really liked the chorus, thought the, the sentiment was cool and the melody was good, but it was, uh, it was very ballady at the time. And I was unattached to the rest of the song. I didn't think I'd done the chorus justice, which is a thing that happens a lot in songwriting. You end up with a, sometimes it's the verse. Sometimes you, you end up with this one part that you think this is great, but I haven't gotten the rest good enough yet. And that was the case in this song. I just thought that chorus was great. And I thought, what would really do that chorus justice? And then let me work backwards. And I liked the idea of having it be fairly energetic. And um, I've kind of, uh, I, there was a lot of sort of, live instrumentation on the album and i've i've really been enjoying leaning into it live drums live guitars etc and um i just thought that would be a fun place to take that chorus so at first i recorded some i used some like fake drum sounds which the song starts off with i think she got what she wanted and uh, played some guitars and then ended up writing new verses overtopped that and uh that was sort of breathing this new life into the concept of the song i think she got what she wanted waited a week before she even responded that's some bass some guitars some claps and then we have an incredible touring drummer named Andrew Marshall and I sent him a reference track with like terrible sounding programmed drums playing 
like a live drum pattern, which is, I've never, we've never had a live drummer on any of Billy or my music up until this point. It's always just been drums that I uh, used samples and, and built kits out of, you know, like a snare sample, a kick sample. So I sent him this kind of like roadmap and said, uh, you know, I'd love for you to play actual drums and follow this roadmap as much as you feel that it fits. The song was written, the song was recorded with the exception of real drums. And he very generously sent back amazing drums. That are then layered with all the uh, synthy drums. But they just sat in a really nice way and uh, they brought a, a sort of an energy to the song that was unreplicable. And they combine with all your live instrumentation to make it feel like, hey, there's four finishes in a room. Or... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the vocal is primary vocal. Let's see. When it gets quiet, I can hear a mind The chorus is super thick. There's so many vocal layers on this chorus. I thought it, I really wanted to sound like a ton of people in the same room singing at the same time. When it gets quiet, I can hear a mind And then on top of that, I took all those vocals and then bounced them into one single vocal and then ran it through a sort of a like a Leslie. It's actually a Tremolator plugin by Sound Toys, but it sounds kind of like a Leslie that the Beatles would use. And you know, again, it's like one of those things where I didn't premeditate that. I didn't go like, oh, I, I know it would sound brilliant. You know, I, like, I can't give myself credit. I just was experimenting and trying different stuff out. And in that case, I can see from the order I have everything in. I thought maybe I'll do a layer of distortion, tried that. Maybe I'll do a reverb, tried that. Maybe I'll do this tremolator plugin and try that. And then thought it sounded really exciting and made the chorus stand out a little bit more. There's a, a synth called an Electron that I bought while we were on tour that sits in my dressing room every day that I love and played a little counter melody for the chorus over top of that. not even really poking out. It's pretty buried, but it gives a nice kind of, you know, melodic sense to something that otherwise is like a lot of distorted guitars. There's a lot of guitars on this song too. That's the other thing that I ended up with a bunch of. Um, these are all in the chorus. And there's acoustic too. Acoustic guitars are super, super rhythmic. If you're not miking the actual fretboard of an electric guitar, you're losing a lot of the rhythm of the strums because it's just capturing the amp, which is capturing the pickup, which is capturing the note itself. So you're and not a super rhythmic instrument unless you're playing them through like 
you know, like you can do like palm muted chugs, which can be more rhythmic, which I do a lot in this song, but I find an acoustic guitar so rhythmic, even at a super low volume, because you're hearing all that like jangle of the strings. Mm. So it's that layering of those two elements that's really what's exciting to me about recording electric and acoustic instruments. And I had recorded some tambourine and some shaker and stuff, but our, our drummer did a better job. So Andrew Marshall played all that too. Which I left pretty loud in the mix. I love the way that a shaker sounds with a drum kit. I feel like it's a it's an underrated part of percussion on songs. Good tambourine, good shakers. Yeah. I learned that lesson from my high school drummer, David Marinelli. He was I remember being like, I love the sound of this album, talking about like a bad son's album and he was like, There's a lot of shaker on this album. He was like, I think that's one of the things you like about it. It was like the shaker and there was like I think a vibra slap on it too. And I was like, Oh, you're right. I really like auxiliary percussion. I always remembered that. <laughs> and so where were you recording all of this? I did a hundred percent of the song on the road. I think we started Billy's twenty twenty two tour in um New Orleans. So I started recording it in my dressing room in New Orleans. So I did this whole song on a TLM one oh three microphone. I have one electric guitar, one acoustic guitar, and one bass guitar in my green room. So I didn't have a lot of options there, and I just recorded all of the guitars on, on that, did all the vocals over the course of probably about two weeks, I think, worked yeah. on this song. But uh, yeah, it was all in green rooms on tour, which is pretty typical for us. You know, we do a lot of work on show days because we have a great crew and we don't have to, you know, be out there setting everything up. And so we sit around and record stuff. Yeah, fantastic. I love that idea. And it's so constructive because here you are, you've got a brand new song ready to go. What's the plan with Mona Lisa? Mona, Mona Lisa? Lisa comes out uh, on the 15th of July. Yeah, 15th of July. Right. So it comes out right around the corner. And a standalone single or yeah, it's it a lead standalone. to the next project? Yeah, I've got a bunch of new music that I'm really excited about, but this one's a standalone that probably will be rolled onto a, an album at some point in the next you know, calendar year or the next 12 months. Exciting. Um, should we just hear another quick blast sure. of it? And then I have another couple of questions for you. Sure. the latest release from Phineas, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. And although it was recorded on the road, yeah. do you think it was informed by life on the road in terms of being <laughs> up there on stage with band, playing to crowds, you know, that you were trying to capture some of that? Yeah, probably, you know, not consciously, but, mm. but yeah, probably subconsciously. I feel like it's very hard to not be informed by your daily life. So that's a good observation. I haven't thought about it, but yeah, that's probably totally true. Just sort of like knowing what what a concert venue feels like. And our touring life has informed a lot of the music we've made. You know, we made uh, Billy's first EP and my first couple songs having never played shows. And so we had no idea how they would translate live when we started to play shows because we'd never played one. 
I'd played shows in high school, but we'd, you know what I mean? Mm. Billy, we, yeah. with Billy, we'd never played shows. And uh, I remember making the first album really to tour, you know? I remember like the song Bad Guy being like the number one thing I remember like thinking about and fantasizing about was like, this would be awesome to come out on stage to at Coachella. Like that would be really exciting. Yeah. Cause I think when we were making Bad Guy, we'd already been booked for Coachella or something. So it was like, that would be sick if we opened the show with this song of course became ridiculous because it became like at the time our biggest song you're like shooting the cannon off in the first <laughs> yeah. three minutes of your show but that was what we made it for so the first album was very informed by sort of touring and and then the second album as well i mean the song happier than ever was was also a, a real like you know this is going to be a great song to end the show with it was one of those things we thought mm. when we were making that song not when we were writing it so much but when we were recording it and putting it all together and yeah with my music too it's been sort of an understanding of, you know, what a, a live show feels like and looks like. So, yeah, that's a great observation. I hadn't really thought about it. So, everybody who comes on Tape Notes, we ask them a couple of questions. Okay. Uh, one is about tech. Okay. A favorite piece of technology or equipment or an instrument uh -huh. that you can't work without? Yeah. Uh, Software-wise, I got to give it up for the plugin Omnisphere. That plugin is on 99% of every song I've ever made at this point in time. It's just one of those plugins that's like too good not to turn to. It's so vast. It has so many different things that I really, it's just a masterpiece of a plugin in terms of hardware. Huge fan of the, the Fender Acoustasonic these days. I think that's a really cool instrument. The other question we like to ask people is about advice, whether okay. through experience yeah. or through the wisdom of somebody else you've yeah. picked up a piece of advice that you would want to share or pass on to other people sure um i wish that advice was more broad i feel like everybody's career in the same field is so weirdly different that i could give advice that worked well for me that would be the wrong advice for somebody else which is just sort of par for the course and I feel like you watch these sort of like seminars at Berkeley or whatever, and people say like one thing and it's applicable for some people and not others. So with that grain of salt, the thing that I would say that I thought was very profound when I heard it was a mastering engineer when I was like 13, who was like a friend's dad. I called him and was like, how do I make my song loud? Which is such a thing you say when you're first figuring out how to learn how to produce music. And he told me about like limiters. I didn't know what a limiter was. And then he said, he said, listen, it's really important that you understand the delineation between the correct way to do something and whether you like it or not. He was like, you know, everyone in the music world is going to tell you why you did something incorrectly. You know, there's, oh, that's too loud. That's too this. That's too this. And he was like, it's really important to like something or not like it because your taste is what really matters. And it's also going to be your greatest defense if somebody goes, oh, that vocal sense, the vocal's too compressed. That's true if you don't like the way it sounds. That might be the reason. But if you go, no, 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 I compressed it that way on purpose. I like it. Even if it was an accident, if you like how it sounds, then it's the correct way because taste is everything. So I remember that being very profound. And I've yeah. always thought about that, especially as a self-taught person where I've, I'm always doing something wrong. But my defense is like, do I think it sounds good or not? And uh, if I do, then it's correct, even if I did it wrong. Yeah, that's great. And one final thought is, what's exciting you most in the world of production at the moment, do you think? Either yours or other people? <laughs> yeah, mine is <laughs> the most exciting. Well, it might be something you, you've kind of stumbled upon in your Who's own good? Well, I'm a big fan of this whole resurgence of 2001 Hillary Duff era 
like pop rock. I'm I'm pumped on that. In terms of producers who are like blowing me away, I just found this album called uh, Porno Violence by AV Dummy. It's really crazy. It's really cool. Um, what else have I been liking? Been listening to a lot of Cake, the band Cake. Yeah. I know that's not new, but it's been exciting. Chase Plato, really cool production. And when you listen to stuff like that, yeah. you know, is it to escape? Is it to further your education? You know, what, what, what do you, I mean, because it, especially now, say yeah. you're on the road, you're playing to loads of people in different places. And in a way, when music becomes your job, you know, sure. it, it can be a bit off-putting to yeah. even turn to it. I don't listen to it for market research, for sure. I, I definitely only, only listen to music that I respond to. You know, I'll listen to something once if it's recommended to me, but I won't mm. listen to it twice just because it's critically acclaimed or something. It's all about what I like and what I don't. And to answer the other part of that question, it's totally true. And I listen to a lot of podcasts as a result of that. I've just sort of like, yeah, I just spent 10 hours working on a piece of music. The thing that would not bring me peace right now is listening to another hour of music on this drive. It's like, let's, I'm going to listen to a, you know interesting podcast. So for sure, it can kind of burn you out on it. But at the end of the day, I mean, I still love music all the time and I'm still you know, obsessed with it and everything else. But it is true. It's like a weird sort of give and take. I was just thinking about it in terms of like, I, I love to cook, but I, I'm not like a chef. And I was thinking about like how fucked up your relationship with food might be if you're a chef, you know? Yeah. From any angle, from the fact that you're having to make something over and over to perfect it, and you're taking a bite of it when you couldn't be less hungry because you've taken a bite of the last six batches of it to knowing the difference between slightly undercooked, slightly overcooked and perfect about everything and, you know, tasting something and being sort of never able to let go of your intellectual, like, this is a little bit overcooked, you know, it's like some, a layman like me, like, I don't notice that stuff, you know? And uh, so I don't, I don't envy that. I think that's the sacrifice you make for a profession that you love and that you might be talented at is then you kind of let go of your perspective or maybe your lack of perspective. So it's challenging. You do kind of have to let go of having a really simple opinion about something. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Phineas, thanks so much Thank for coming guys. along thanks, guys. on board with the ship to have this chat. Really fascinating stuff. We should play one more song as an outro What do you guys, What do you guys want? What, what do you want to play? Let's what do, do you want um, to share? What we haven't heard? Let's do Peaches Etude, which is a yes. piano piece I wrote for my dog. Lovely. Thanks again, Phineas, and thanks to Lightship 95 Studio for allowing us on board, and good luck for all the O2 shows and everything else, Phineas. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.